If you want to turn to Psalm uh, 11, the 11th Psalm, either on your handheld or your Bible, you can follow along on the screen if you'd like. I, I thought I'd share a story. I haven't shared this anywhere I've gone uh, before, but, um, oh, and by the way, I should explain that I am the uh, pastoral care um, director for our network. So for the Assemblies of God churches, I get to basically try to do all I can do just to minister and bless pastors. And that's a real privilege. I pastored here in Mesa for 18 years over on Power Road. It's now called Via. At those days, it was Red Mountain Christian Center. Then I went to Missouri for seven years. And way before all of that, I was in North Phoenix at um, the Dream City Church. Now was Phoenix First Assembly. And I was a youth pastor in college and career there all through my 20s. So anyway, but uh, I'm glad to be right here at Generation today. So I, I've only told the story one time, and it was at Generation Church in a 930 service today. So I'm going to tell it now again. But um, you're wondering, who are you? Well, I'm the guy who almost was, all right? That's what I woke up thinking about today. Uh, I love Eugene Peterson. He gave us the Message Bible. He was commissioned by, I think it was Zondervan or whatever company it was, to do that in the early 90s. And he pastored a church for about 30 years. But he is a linguistic genius, Hebrew and Greek. And so when you read the Message Bible, though it's fun and kind of out there and really unique, the bottom line is it, it's an amazing translation, but it's really just paraphrase rather, but coming from a mind of a man that really understands the language as well. So his niece attended our church back in Mason where we were back in uh, Missouri where we were pastoring for about seven years. And so one day I talked to her husband who would be then a nephew by marriage kind of thing and said, you know, I love Eugene Peterson. If there's any way that I could go out to Flathead Lake that I've read about in his memoir, I've read it three times called The Pastor, and I'd love to go out there, interview him, and then I would just um, kind of just give like three-minute little segments, and then we'd launch the series called the Eugene Peterson Series. So I was excited about it. It looked like it was a slam dunk. And then he came back. It took a few months. came back and said um, his two sisters said that at his age, he's just not really up to that. He doesn't travel and speak anymore, et cetera. And um, so Jeff is not going to work out. Oh, I was bummed out. But he said, but I, I do have to tell you that you were trumped by someone. Now, Trump means different now than it did then. Okay, so, but I was trumped by somebody, and this is just a couple years ago, a few years back, and probably four years ago now. <clears throat> and so uh, he said this entourage of, of black SUVs with totally black tinted windows came pouring in with the billowing smoke behind him on the camp there where he lives in that cabin with his wife, and out got, or out walked Bono and his group. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty amazing. So he spent like two or three days with Eugene Peterson. Bono did, okay? And, and, and that should have been my time with Eugene Peterson. So that means Bono and me are like, you know, total opposites, all right? But anyway, I mean, so I'm the guy who was. I, I could have been, all right? And instead, Bono got the interview. And if you YouTube it, not during church, could I hear it, amen? But later, all right, go to YouTube. It is fascinating, 23-minute YouTube of Eugene Peterson with Bono, and it's about the Psalms, and it's really neat. And we all know that Bono has a spiritual element to him. I don't understand everything fully, but man, he breaks into the Shepherd's Psalm, Psalm 23, on that YouTube. I couldn't have done it any better vocally, I can tell you that. That was a joke. All right, come on, lighten up a little bit this morning. All right, Psalm 11, but anyway, I'm the guy who could have been. It's an honor to be here this morning. If you look to the screen, her diary reads as follows. Sometimes when I stand in some corner of the camp, my feet planted on earth, my eyes raised toward heaven, tears run down my face, tears of deep emotion and gratitude. 
Now, you read those words, and you might think that was someone right here recently, Pastor Ryan and Pastor Amy, running our kids' camps up in Prescott, or one of our youth just a few weeks ago there. But these are actually the words of a woman in her late 20s, and she is talking about standing in the Nazi death camp. And those are her words. Eddie Hillisum is an amazing character. You might want to read her book. She was uh, in Amsterdam during the Nazi regime. And uh, yet we don't know really much about her other than from her writings. But she, from the day the Dutch Jews were ordered to wear the yellow star up to the day that she boarded a cattle car bound for Poland, Eddie Hillisum uh, committed herself to a, a very ambitious task. And that was she chose while in a camp Knowing what her future most likely was, she wanted to write and reflect on life and on her view of God. It was a perspective that is just phenomenal. And so as we go through this, matter of fact, the song we just sang about the Holy Spirit and welcoming the Holy Spirit, that is what God always wants to do. God wants us to have the right perspective. And your perspective has everything to do with the way you live life, the way you serve God, the way you interact with people. Perspective is so important. And David gave us an awesome perspective in Psalm 11 we're going to look at here in just a moment. But for Eddie, from the age of 27 to 29, she kept a meticulous diary And she recorded the events and affairs, what was happening in her world there in the camp, and then her internalizing of them. Forty years later, her book was published, long after, of course, she was gone. And though she remained in solidarity with the Jewish people, she was very well read. And in her writings, you hear her reflect on everything from the Bible to uh, St. Augustine in her writings. And so she obviously had read a wide array of, of people and authors, and that helped her become who she was. When a friend indignantly pointed out her attitude, that, man, you're almost like a Christian the way you are toward our enemies in this camp, she said, yes, Christianity, why not? A Jewish woman in a concentration camp. Matter of fact, as you go on to read her writings, July 3rd, which would be tomorrow, 1942, she wrote the following. I must admit, what is at stake is our impending destruction and annihilation. They were out to destroy us completely. We must accept that and go on from there. Very well then, I accept it. I work and continue to live with the same conviction and I find life meaningful. And I must try to live a good and faithful life to my last breath. The midst of her suffering, she believed that she needed to persevere in one thing and it's the highest ideal, she said, for anyone and that is to love other people as much as you can. And she determined to love everyone, her enemies, those that that were with her, against her. She determined she wanted to love people. That was her highest ideal. She felt that was her calling in the camp. With increasing regularity, she describes her compulsion to fall on her knees, as we just sang about. She would fall on her knees in prayer. And as you read her writings, you realize along the way, it's almost as if God became the one she internalized things with and was working through the things in the camp. Quote, God, take, my, take me by your hand. I shall follow you faithfully and not resist too much. I shall evade none of the tempests life has in store for me. I shall try to face it all as best as I can. I shall try to spread some of my warmth, of my genuine love for others wherever I go. Here she is in the camp. September 7th, 1943, her and her parents, they boarded a transport train to Poland 
And from the window of the train, she tossed out a card that read, We have left the camp singing. And she died in Auschwitz a little over two months later. Eddie Hillison was 29 years of age. Perspective. Now let's look at Psalm 11 today. Because I think there's a parallel. It's July 4th weekend. I love America. I love July 4th. I hope you do. I hope you have a blast on Tuesday. I hope we enjoy and celebrate our freedoms. But, but perspective is so important at any stage of our life. It certainly is right now as a nation and as a people. And as we look at this today, the 11th Psalm written by David, he's the great warrior, the great king, the great psalmist. He's the shepherd boy that, that grew up, of course. And, and David is a citizen of the nation of Israel. And so as we come to this psalm, we don't know for sure what was breaking loose, but something was happening to the point that David had people advising him, saying, why don't you become like a bird and fly away? Let's read it together, verse number one. David writes, he opens up with a statement, in the Lord I take refuge. So then why do you say to me, or how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? I've never really liked birds a whole lot, but I have to admit, they're amazing creatures, I was sitting there looking at them just yesterday, and my wife, we were talking about uh, one aspect of them, and, and then a pigeon came along. And how many know a pigeon falls shy of a bird, all right? I don't know what they are. I just don't like them anyway. So I prayed them all off to my neighbors. No, I'm just kidding, but, but I, don't, I don't like birds. Uh, pigeons, rather. But birds, I think, are, are magnificent. They're majestic. And I was watching them in our vacation just a, a few months ago, and they were, they were soaring over the ocean. And, and these particular are the ones that are able to just, as they're, as they're seeking out their prey and soaring down, all of a sudden they go up, and then boom, they are prepared. And they do like a nosedive, and they're just, they look like an arrow going in. It's amazing to watch them come back out with whatever they have to eat. And we were just watching them spectacular. And at times I look at birds like that, and I think how, how incredible it would be if we could just kind of do this, huh, and just go anywhere we want to go and just fly all over East Mesa. Wouldn't that be awesome? I went to Wonder Woman last night. She was incredible, I might add, by the way. But she could do stuff like that. And that's what they're saying to David. David, why don't you just be like a bird and just fly away? And David knew what that meant. He had lived his early life as a young man, an adult, in that vein. That's what kept him alive, if you remember, when King Saul ran after David. But we don't know for sure where this is in David's history. But verses 2 and 3 at least help us frame it a little bit better. For behold, the wicked bend the bow... They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So that helps us a little bit more to understand. I mean, the evil are bending their bow and they're shooting arrows at the righteous. And if, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Peterson puts it this way in the Message Bible. He says, I've already run for dear life into the arms of God. So that's God is my refuge. So why would I run away now when you say, run to the mountains, the evil bows are bent, the wicked arrows aimed, um, aimed to shoot under cover of darkness at every heart open to God. The bottoms dropped out of the country. Good people don't have a chance. The foundations are being destroyed, David. Why don't you run? But see, David had a different perspective. And his perspective all begins verse number one. And that frames the next six verses in this little psalm. And we're going to just kind of walk through this psalm together and then draw the summary points and then we will conclude in just a little bit. But I want you to see the perspective that David had versus those that were coming to him, wanting him to flee. I found it interesting in recent presidential elections, 
the number of especially Hollywood elites and some of the ones that come out. And I remember when George W. Bush was elected, man, all of them were going to flee. They're going to leave America. They couldn't stand to live in a country with him in the, in the Oval Office. And it's really interesting because as far as I know, they're still in the magazine covers. They're still making television and movies and all that. And, and they still live in Bel Air. They still live in, in Beverly Hills, you know, and, and, and they're still here, okay? But how many times I'm going to run, I'm going to flee, But when we look around on this July 4th, as I do every patriotic day that I can pause and celebrate, there is an aspect of it that you can't help but sit and kind of look and wonder about verse 3. If the foundations be destroyed, what do righteous people do? Because things are changing. Last time I was here, I told my bicycle story from 1969, if you were here. It was kind of a crazy moment in my life. You know, I look back, today is nothing like 1969. Both good and bad. But aspects of it were foundations. It just were different. And some things are drastically different and changes so rapidly. Other things, it's like that frog in the kettle, right, that slowly boils and all of a sudden dies. It's like that's happening around us and we're realizing our foundations are being destroyed. And many today would say, and many in the church today would say, let's be like the birds and flee to the mountain. But David says, my Lord is my refuge. So why would I flee when God is my refuge? It's a perspective. It's a rich perspective today. So what do the righteous do? David says, I've been trusting the Lord a long, long time. And all of that is anchored around a perspective. It's anchored around something that I want you to capture this morning, please. As we look at it, realize this is the key for David. It's like a global perspective. It is a national perspective, if you will. It goes far above anything on the internet, any kind of uh, political pundit, or any kind of talk show host, anything else. It is so beyond that when you look at what he begins then with in verse number four. The Lord is in his holy temple. That's good. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. See, God is still on his throne. That's David's perspective. That frames verse number one, that he is my refuge. Who's the refuge? The Lord that's on the throne is David's refuge. So where does David go to find his peace? Where does David go to find his strength? He goes to the throne of God where he knows the Lord is. And others are saying, run away. No, why would I do that? Because the Lord is on his throne and his eyes see, his t- eyes, his eyelids are testing the ways of men. I served for eight and a half years there at, at Phoenix Earth with, with, first with Pastor Barnett and, and he used to have this theme he would kind of kick into now and then with messages and I, I had been down the road with him before. I should have known better but we used to sit over here in the, in the chairs up on the platform, kind of the good old days of the 80s. And that's how church was in our suit and tie and all of that. And I remember that morning distinctly because he turned and he said, why don't you guys give me your Bible? And so, man, I'm a good youth pastor. Here's my Bible, Pastor Barnett. And so he took it and then he went into as he's on the throne, he's off the throne. He's on the throne, he's off the throne. And it's true of all of us here today that when things are going really well, he's on the throne. And when things aren't going so well, he's off the throne. And it's so true, isn't it? And he took a little chair and he pulled it right over here and he took my Bible and he said, he's on the throne. And then he picked it up and said, then things go bad. And he's off and he threw it down. By the time he handed it back to me, about half of a week's salary was gone right then. Because I mean, you know, youth pastors don't make beans, right? You know? So there it was, it was like tattered. But you know, he's right. 
God is on the throne all the time. No matter what is happening in our world, breaking loose in our lives, God is on the throne. And that's why we humble ourselves before him. It's why we, we, we bow on our knees as we just sing. It's why we worship him. Why? Because he is God, and he's always been God, and he always will be God, the God who was, the God who is, and the God who is to come. That's the God we serve today. And he is on, he is on his throne, praise God. Listen to what Isaiah the prophet said about him. Oh, I love this. Who else has held the oceans in his hand? Who has measured off the heavens with his finger? Who else knows the weight of the earth or has weighed the mountains and the hills on a scale? Who is able to discern or to advise the spirit of the Lord? Who knows enough to give him advice or teach him? Has the Lord ever needed anyone's advice? Does he need instruction about what is good? Did someone teach him what is right or show him the path of justice? No. All rhetorical. Verse 15, behold, the nations are like a drop from the bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Kim Jong-un, trust me, he'll be gone someday. Despots come and despots go, but the Lord remains upon his throne. It is a perspective, amen. Give him praise this morning, amen. When I was in Israel just a few years ago, first time, and I, I've been on so many missions trips, but I never uh, disciplined myself enough to say I really need to go. Now I can't wait to go back. It's an amazing experience. I'm sure some of you have gone. I wish everyone could go. And you do. You walk the paths of the Bible. It's amazing. We're on the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum by the sea there, Peter's hometown. It, it, the whole experience was just rich, and I loved Jerusalem. But I left, I came home realizing that I never would have dreamed one thing that would captivate me so much would be the buildings of King Herod the Great. Now, he was the king, as we read of Herod, at the time of Jesus' birth. And so, and there were other Herods to come, but he was Herod the Herod, okay? He was the great. And that guy built, he was a genius. He was an architect. He, he had incredible buildings that he built all across that region. And so you will go six or seven miles outside of Jerusalem and there is the Herodian and, and you see the ruins of it, but there was an amazing escape and, and refuge fortress that he built. And then we went to Masada, which is up on top of the Mesa there. And, and it looks overlooks the Dead Sea. That's where the Dead Sea Scrolls are right there are the caves where they found them back in the late 1950s. And, and it's just amazing in Masada. All All that they built as a refuge. His family would escape there and the military would be there and a thousand people could live for an entire year on the food supply and the water supply on top of Masada. But then we came to Caesarea by the sea, by the Mediterranean. Gorgeous. It's like being in San Diego only to realize this man built unto Caesar. Caesar was God. So he built unto Caesar and you go out And there's the ruins right there, but you can imagine, here was the palace. And to walk that off and imagine that is where he would sit in his pomp and all of his prosperity and all the different people that talks about who would come there and live and stay because Herod could only be one place at one time and he had places all over the place like that. But you're looking over the Mediterranean. Right behind the palace was the huge arena there, the stadium. And that stadium uh, would hold up to 5,000 people. And we sat there as our tour guide kind of walked us through. And though it's in ruins, it's still strong enough today. 2,000 years later, we're sitting there amazed at what he built, looking over the, the Mediterranean 
Mediterranean. And then on the side of that is the huge long arena at the Hippodrome there. And, and that's where the horse races took place. And, and thousands of people, I don't know, tens of thousands could have sat there watching the horse races. And then they have where the, all the horses were kept in the stalls. And you, and you just see the ruins of all of this. And that's the point. It just ruins today. You have to use your imagination because today it's dust. But in that day, it was amazing. That's how it's true of, of all rulers, all nations. What are they? Look at Isaiah's word, a drop in the bucket. That's a colloquial saying that we use today, right? But today we walk on ruins. Why? Because they're a drop in the bucket. Is God then distracted as he sits on his throne? No. Let's read the rest of verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. He is very much interested in what's happening on the earth. He tests that word there. He is observing and he's weighing the, the, the sons of men, the children of men. Other examine, uh, translations. He examines the children of man. He tries the children of men. A prophet Jeremiah put it this way. God spoke to Jeremiah one day and said, I want you to go down to a potter's field, which is very common in that day. So he went to the potter's field, and here was someone working with his pot and, and in the clay. And God spoke to Jeremiah and said, Jeremiah, now we're dealing here not with people, not with individuals, with nations. And God said, the nations are like that piece of pottery. And if I deem and I'm going to bless that nation and they turn away from me, I just might pick them up as the potter does and discard the clay and start all over again. Or if I choose that I'm going to bring judgment upon a nation, if that nation turns back to me, I will keep them on the wheel and I will work with them because that's a God who is in control of the nations. This is why as you read other of the prophets in the Old Testament, it's not all just Israel. But for many of the prophets, they talked about Edom and Moab and surrounding enemies and communities and cities and nations because God is the Lord on the throne over all the nations of the earth. Today, China, South Korea, North Korea, Iran, United States of America, God is on his throne. And the nations are like a drop in the bucket to him. That's where we read the book of Daniel. It's crazy. Many people love Daniel. It's, it's remarkable, though, because it lays out the future history. We watch him lay out the Greeks are going to come, the Romans are going to come, Jesus is going to come, and it leads all the way. And you even read of year 27 A.D. in the book of Daniel going back, what, 2,700 years and we see, how, how can that happen? Because he's on his throne and the nations are like a drop in the bucket to him. And he knows, he sees God in his sovereignty. We serve an awesome God, don't we? You say, well, what about all the evil and the suffering? You're right. You say, why doesn't God intervene? Well, that's true of everything. If God's rule was, was, was in this earth, you'd have no sin, you would have total peace, and guess what? That day is going to come. One day Jesus is going to sit on the throne of David. And one day he's going to rule the nations again, the Bible tells us. There'll be a thousand years of peace upon the earth. And we look for that day. We long for that day. And you know what God does when he tests the children of man today? Just what you and I do. We grieve over what we see happening in our world. It's a result of one thing. Sin. 
That's why as we go to take communion and receive that and worship later, be sure to take your own sin in this moment. And don't be looking and pointing the finger at nations or anybody else on the earth, but take your own sin and realize, Jesus, you paid the price. God, you stood for justice. Say, how is there justice in this little cup of communion? How is there justice here? I'll tell you how. Because someone had to pay for my sin. And either I pay for my sin, you can't, but Jesus could. And he did. And so the justice of a holy, perfect, pure God is that to have relationship with him, someone has to pay for that sin. Well, none of us can do that. And I've seen people in, in, in film, and I've, I've seen people in India, I've seen people in parts of the world, but, but watching people do all they can do, crawl on broken glass. One guy had hooks in his back, and it was stretching his skin many, many inches as he was pulling weight, all of this trying to appease God. Friends, you can't appease God for your own sin but Jesus did and this represents the body and the blood of Jesus the only way we can have justice in the world is through the loss of Jesus for our gain so prepare your hearts for that moment say where is God I'm trust me God grieves the way that we grieve today and as we look at the world and realize that he is looking down upon it then you know it, it, it hurts his heart what he sees but again Nero is gone. Caligula is gone. Before that, years before, Alexander the Great came and went. Genghis Khan, years later, centuries later, he came and went. As we look through history, Attila the Hun, you name it, the pottery has been thrown and discarded, but God remains at the wheel, and he's the one in his throne still. He's king of kings. He's lord of lords. But then we come to verse number five, and it's kind of interesting. The Lord tests the righteous. So he sees all of man, the children of man. His eyelids see them, but he says he tests the righteous. The word there means where you, you know, melt down the metals to see what impurities are in them, what's really there. But notice it's not the wicked here, but it's the righteous. And I think David takes a solace in that. I think there's something inside of David saying, you know what? God sees everything, and he's testing my heart and so I've chosen to do this. I'm going to run to him when everybody's saying to run to the hills. See, David had most likely at the time, if other people are advising him accordingly, he probably could have fled. He probably on his own. He had the resources he could have gotten out of there. But instead, what did David do? Instead, David says, I'm going to trust the Lord. I know the Lord sees everything. And I believe the Lord is watching me and testing my heart right now. And I'm not going to flee like a bird. I'm going to have faith and stay put. And that's what we need to have today. But the Lord tests us. How does he test us? Through our trials, through our losses, through our circumstances. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Now this is like classic David now. Now we're getting to the brass tacks. Come on, God, bring judgment down upon the evil, right? David does that a lot in the Psalms. And I tell you, there are times in my life, human trafficking, mm. the sexual slave industry all around the world today. A pastor friend of mine was in Calcutta just a few years ago when I heard him talk about it. Man, you could just sense that, that righteous indignation in his heart. But he said he sat outside and they described what was going on in that building with women and with young women and with teenage girls and with children. And he said something rose up within him. He just 
He wanted vengeance. He's a pastor. We're to love our enemies. But he's something inside of me. That's that righteous indignation towards sin. When I see despots rule and they have an incredible military, meanwhile, when all the people are suppressed and they don't have any money at all and they're the poorest country on earth but they have an amazing military, that angers me. When I see children abused like that, that angers me. When I see things, I feel like praying like David. Come on, God. Bring the wrath of God upon these people. And you know what? God is God. How many of you are glad we're not? Right? You don't want me to be your God, and I don't want you to be my God. Pastor Ryan's a good guy, though, I have to admit. He's a good guy, but no, I'm just kidding. Of course not. Why? Verse 7, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. Wow. What a beautiful truth as he closes the psalm. The upright. Peterson puts it this way in the Message Bible. God's business is putting things right. He loves getting the line straight, setting us straight. Once we're standing tall, we can look him straight in the eye. The upright shall see his face. Now, David has four things, basically, that we've seen out of this that I just want to quickly, and if you're jotting notes, here's your notes right here. I just developed it a little differently, and now we'll just summarize what David said. Point number one, verse one. No matter what is going on, rather than flee and take flight, I'm going to live in faith. My hope is in the Lord. Verse number one, the Lord is my refuge. Second thing he said is to picture God on his throne. Verse four, God is on the throne. My refuge, my God, is on the throne over everything happening. And then verses five and six, then what? Remember that God sees everything. And David's saying, that includes us. That includes me. That includes you. All of us, the righteous and the unrighteous. He sees it all, but he tests us. He's wanted to see what we're worth. You know what we need to be doing today? We need to be praying like never before for our leaders in America. Like never before. We need to not abandon some people, fly away. No, we need to stay put and believe that God is going to do a brand new work in America. And it can begin right here at Generation Church in East Mesa, Arizona. How exciting, a move of God here. Don't we want that? That's what we pray for. Because he's on his throne. He's on his throne. He sees everything. He tests the heart of the righteous. Remember that. Ah, but don't miss verse 7. And that is to see God amidst his circumstances. See God. No matter what you're going through today, see God. Now, the beatific vision is what we often talk about as people of faith, that we look forward to seeing God one day. Absolutely. Can you imagine what heaven will be like? Imagine what eternity will be like, what Jesus bought for us, that we have eternity with him. That will be incredible. The beatific vision is something that we are to long for. But I believe here David is saying, we'll see God then, but in your circumstances right now, he can see God right now. That Daniel saw God, that Jeremiah saw God, that Isaiah the prophet saw God, that any who follow him, the pure in heart, Jesus said, will what? They will see God. So no matter what we are going through in our lives, no matter what it is, the heart of David's words here is that you can see God right where you're at. Just stick to the vision of who he is, where he sits upon his throne today. So I opened up reading Eddie Hillison's incredible memoirs. Talk about seeing God in the midst of utter depravity, the midst of such death and horrific surroundings, but she saw God. How did she do that? 
The same is true, a contemporary of hers that I've read a lot of and I've built entire sermon series around, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a a Lutheran pastor in that day and he was in a different camp but similar circumstances and he was arrested because of his faith and put in that camp. And Bonhoeffer, a German theologian and philosopher and pastor, and that man saw God in that camp. There's a medical doctor and I've read the words before, I don't have them with me today, but this medical doctor Watch Dietrich to be led to the gallows to be hung. And on that day, that morning, that moment, Bonhoeffer said, can I just pray one more time? They said, yes. Soldier standing there, the medical doctor watching him to approve of his death. But he said he was so moved by the humility of that pastor who knelt down, prayed one last prayer, stood up, walked to the gallows, and was hung. See, how do people do that? How does Eddie sing her song? I hope that we never have to face anything like that. But do you know it's happening all over the world right now? There are Christians undergoing abundant, unbelievable persecutions right now. Someone just talked about it this week and said, do you realize, and I was like kind of fuzzy in my, my numbers, et cetera, but he was giving me statistics of what he had just read off the internet, and yeah, we sit so comfortably here today, but to know what's going on around our world, these things happen. How do you survive that? One way for sure is having the right perspective. And Bonhoeffer saw God on his knees by faith, and a moment later, he saw God by sight in glory. And it's all a matter of perspective, isn't it? So I'd ask you this morning, what do you see? I'd ask you today as you're approaching whatever's going on in your world, as you look around, I'd say, what what, what do you see? When you look at our city and our state and our nation, when you hear all the pundits and everything that's being said today, bottom line is even some may say, why don't you flee? Why don't you become like a bird and go to the mountains instead? Can you say with David, the Lord is my refuge, present tense. And God is on the throne. Put your hope in God. Picture God in his throne. Remember that he sees everything, including your heart, and he's testing us right now. And then lastly, we can see him in our circumstances.